misunderstood. Ralph Waldo Emerson asked an interesting question. Is it so bad to be misunderstood? Pythagoras was misunderstood, and Socrates, and Jesus, and Luther, and Copernicus, and Galileo, and Newton, to be great is to be misunderstood. And Emerson could have added the Apostle Paul to that list because he was misunderstood by friends and foes alike. And three of those misunderstandings are found in Acts chapters 21 and 22. Paul's friends misunderstood his plans. The Jerusalem church misunderstood his message. And the Jews misunderstood his ministry. We're going to look at the first two of those this morning. Paul's friends misunderstood his plans in verses 1 to 16. Now Paul's plans had been laid out back in chapter 19 and verse 21 where it says, Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Paul was planning to go 700 miles west to Macedonia and Achaia, then 1,400 miles east to Jerusalem, and then 2,000 miles west to Rome. Now, he made those plans while he was in Ephesus. The direct route to Rome would have been about 1,400 miles. He chose instead to travel over 4,000 miles to get there. Why? Because he wanted to be in Jerusalem. And the two reasons he wanted to be in Jerusalem was, number one, he wanted to take a monetary gift from the Gentile churches to the church there. In fact, that's what he was doing in Macedonia and Achaia. He was collecting the money from those Gentile churches. And he took that gift for two reasons. Number one, to meet the needs of the, of the saints in Jerusalem and also to bring unity to, between that Jewish church and the Gentile churches. But Paul also had another reason in going, and that was that he wanted to reach out to the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, but his heart never strayed far from Jerusalem. And just about two months before this in the city of Corinth, he wrote a letter to the Romans. And in that letter, he expressed how he felt about his unbelieving kinsman. And he said it in chapter 9 and verse 2. He said, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. And so before he goes to Rome and before he goes to the western part of the Roman Empire, he wants to go one last time to Jerusalem and reach out to the unbelieving Jews. And that's why Acts chapter 20 and verse 16 tells us that he wanted to be in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Because the city would be flooded with Jewish pilgrims gathered there for the feast. And as chapter 21 opens, Paul has just finished the first part of his plan. He's gone throughout Macedonia and Achaia, and he's now back almost exactly where he started, 30 miles from Ephesus in the city of Miletus. And the first 16 verses of chapter 21 describe to us the next part of his plan, his journey to Jerusalem. We can divide it into three legs. The first is the trip to Tyre in verses 1 to 6. And when it came about that we had parted from them and had set sail, 
We ran a straight course to Kaz and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patera. Paul left the Ephesian elders in Miletus and he traveled down what today would be the southwest coast of Turkey. And we have three stopping points here. The first says they came to Kaz. That's the capital city of the island by that same name. If you're a history buff, this is the hometown of Hippocrates, the father of medicine. The next day they came to Rhodes. That was a place that was known as the Island of Roses. It was most notorious for the fact that it contained one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Colossus of Rhodes, a 105-foot-tall statue of the sun god that looked over the harbor as ships came in and went out. It would have collapsed 200 years before Paul got there under an earthquake, so it was not standing when he approached. And then the next city they came to was Patera, a large and busy seaport on the mainland near the mouth of the Xanthus River. And verse 2 says, And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. Now Paul had been traveling on a ship that was apparently stopping at every port. It was kind of like riding a Greyhound bus. You know, you make pretty good time and they seem to stop everywhere. So, so this ship is stopping. When they get to this major port, Paul goes and finds a ship that's going nonstop straight across the Mediterranean Sea because he wants to get there quicker rather than hugging the coastline. And then verse 3 says, And when we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. They sailed south of the island of Cyprus and came to the city of Tyre, about 60 miles south of present-day Beirut. This trip probably took about five days, and the ship stopped in Tyre to unload its cargo. Verse 4, And after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Now, this was probably Paul's first contact with these believers in Tyre. And that's indicated by the fact that he had to look up the disciples. Ironically, Paul had indirectly had a hand in starting this church. Because in Acts eleven nineteen it says, Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia, where Tyre is. Who was behind the persecution of Stephen? Paul. So Paul, by persecuting the church in Jerusalem, actually sent missionaries out to Tyre that started this church. And Paul is in this city for seven days while they're unloading the cargo, and he kept hearing the same message from the disciples. Don't set foot in Jerusalem. Now, why were they saying that? Well, Luke tells us in verse 4, it was through the Spirit. Now, that sounds like pretty authoritative advice, doesn't it? What does Paul do? Verse 5, and when it came about that our days there were ended, we departed and started on our journey. Our journey where? To Jerusalem. So he spends seven days there. They tell him through the Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. What does he do? He goes to Jerusalem. Now, some good Bible teachers say that Paul was wrong in going to Jerusalem. 
Was he wrong? You say, well, he couldn't have been wrong. He's the apostle Paul. Well, being an apostle doesn't necessarily mean you're right. Peter was an apostle, and in Galatians chapter 2, it says Paul got in his face because he was wrong. Paul wrote the epistles, and when he did, he was inspired, but that doesn't mean that everything he did was perfect. God also records the faults of great men of God. In fact, earlier in the book of Acts, in chapter 15, it describes a dispute that Paul had with Barnabas. And so Paul wasn't necessarily right all the time. But on this occasion, I think he was right in going to Jerusalem. And I think that for several reasons. I want to give them to you. Number one, Paul's pattern of sensitivity to the Spirit. When he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the Word of God in Asia, in Acts 16.6, Paul obeyed. When he was led to speak the Word of God in Macedonia, in Acts 16.9, Paul obeyed. So it's hard for me to imagine if it was clear to him that the Spirit of God was saying, don't go to Jerusalem, that Paul would say, sorry, I'm going anyway. He had established a pattern of sensitivity to the Spirit of God. Second reason, Paul's plans were Spirit-led. Some argue that Paul was told prior to this not to go to Jerusalem. And that comes out of Acts chapter 22 and verse 18. And there Paul is talking about something that happened 20 years earlier. And he says, I was in the temple and I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly. Verse 21. And he said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And some say on the basis of that verse, see, God told Paul to get out of Jerusalem a long time ago. But you see, this was not an absolute prohibition because Paul had been to Jerusalem since then. In Acts 11.30, the church at Antioch wanted to send famine relief to Jerusalem. Who did they send it through? Paul and Barnabas. In Acts chapter 15, Paul was one of the key players in the church council in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 18 and verse 22, on his way home to Antioch from his second missionary journey, Paul stopped in the city of Jerusalem. And now again, he's on his way to Jerusalem. And it seems clear to me that he was spirit-led. And for that, just look back at chapter 19 in verse 21. It says, Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. That's one of those verses where you wonder if the Spirit is little s, human spirit, or big S, Holy Spirit. I think it's big S, Holy Spirit. Paul purposed in the Spirit of God to go to Jerusalem. And I think if you ask Paul, are you led by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem? He would say, absolutely. In fact, look at chapter 20 and verse 22. Paul says, and now behold, bound in spirit... I am on my way to Jerusalem. And then look at verse 24. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. 
Paul clearly saw that going to Jerusalem was part of finishing his course and part of the ministry that he had received from the Lord Jesus. And so he was spirit-led. Third reason was Paul's conscience. And for that, look at Acts chapter 23. When Paul got to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 23, here's what he says in verse 1. And Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Now that would be difficult for Paul to say if he knew he was in Jerusalem out of the will of God. Let me give you a fourth reason, and that is the Lord's confirmation. While you're in Acts 23, look down at verse 11. It says, But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at Paul's side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. What's the Lord say to him? You have been my man in Jerusalem. Now you're going to be my man in Rome. Now, I don't think the Lord would be saying that to Paul if Paul were in Jerusalem out of the will of God. Let me give you a final reason, a fifth reason, and that is the disciples' response. And for that, come back to our passage in chapter 21, verse 5. And when it came about that our days there were ended, we departed and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city... And after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. Now, that's a strange response by the disciples entire if they believe that Paul is disobeying the Lord. Because they escorted him to the ship, they kneeled down and prayed with him, and then they saw him off on his journey to Jerusalem. It's clear to me that Paul was right in going to Jerusalem. You say, well, then how do you explain verse 4? They kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Well, I think the Spirit of God revealed to them what the Spirit of God had revealed to Paul in every city he had been in. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 23, Paul says, The Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. The Spirit revealed that there were bonds and afflictions ahead. These disciples reached the conclusion, if there are bonds and afflictions ahead, then Paul shouldn't go there. You see, don't set foot in Jerusalem was not the divine revelation. It was the advice based on the divine revelation. Paul's friends saw the suffering ahead and they said, that must mean a stop sign. But that's not the way Paul read it because his friends misunderstood his plans. Which brings us to the second leg of this journey and that's to Caesarea in verses 7 to 14. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. Ptolemus is about 25 miles down the coast from Tyre. You know, some of us try to avoid other Christians when we travel. Paul seemed to go out of his way to find them. In Tyre, it says he looked up the disciples. In Ptolemus, he greeted the disciples, even though he was only going to be there 
for a day. Verse 8. And on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and entering the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now Caesarea is another 32 miles south of Ptolemus and again Paul stayed with the believers, this time specifically with Philip. And this verse reminds us that Philip was one of the seven men chosen in Acts chapter 6 to serve under the apostles. He was also gifted as an evangelist. He's the one who first took the gospel to the Samaritans. He's the one who led the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord. And the last thing we read about Philip prior to this is the end of chapter 8 of Acts, and there it says he came to Caesarea. And apparently, that was 20 years ago, apparently he has stayed in Caesarea that entire time because now he has a house there, and verse 9 tells us he also had a family there. Now think about it. Philip's comrade, Stephen, also one of the seven, had been stoned to death under the direction of Paul. Many of Philip's friends had been persecuted and put to death by Paul. And Philip himself had been driven out of Jerusalem by the persecution of Paul. Twenty years later... They're having bagels and cream cheese together in Philip's house. You see, that is an expression of the transforming power of the grace of God. And as you look around this room today, you may see some people who 20 years ago, you never thought you would be singing and worshiping alongside. But you see, when it comes to the grace of God, we never say never. Verse 9. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. Philip's four daughters were virgins. That's indicating that they were unmarried. And perhaps here indicating that they had chosen to remain that way to fulfill God's calling on their life because we're told here that they were prophetesses. Now, I wish we were told more about these four daughters of Philip, like where they prophesied and what they prophesied. But this verse does point out to us that while men and women are given different responsibilities in the church, God gives the full variety of his gifts to men and women alike. Within the ministry of the New Testament church, there were women prophets they have a place. Philip raised four of them. And I can imagine that at times that was a pleasure. I mean, he wouldn't even have to ask, don't you know better? But at other times, I'm sure it was a challenge. He may have even been rebuked a few times with a thus saith the Lord. Verse 10. And as we, as we were staying there for some days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judah. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. While in Caesarea, God sent a prophetic message. And three things mark this message. Number one... It was valid. Agabus 
who was from Judah, came down to Caesarea to deliver the message. You say, well, why would God send the guy from Judah when Paul was staying in the house with four prophetesses? I don't know. The best answer I can come up with, it was to validate the message. You see, Agabus's ministry had already been substantiated to the Apostle Paul. Because back in Acts chapter 11, when Paul was in Antioch about 15 years before this, Agabus is the one who came there and predicted that there would be a worldwide famine. That famine happened. And so Paul knew that this was a valid prophet. Second thing about this prophetic message, it was personal. Unlike the previous prophecy that described what would happen to the whole world, this prophecy described what would happen to one man, Paul. And then thirdly, it was dramatic. Reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets who sometimes tore their robes into pieces to display what God wanted to say, Agabus acted out the message, which tells us that God uses drama. And on this occasion, Agabus takes Paul's belt and binds his hands and his feet, and he says, this is what's going to happen to the man who owns this belt. The Jews will bind him and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Now, everyone gathered with Paul on this occasion heard that revelation. But there were two interpretations. The first is in verse 12. And when we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul's companions and the local believers said, if that's what is awaiting you at Jerusalem, then the only conclusion is, don't go. I mean, why else would God be telling you that there's suffering ahead except to say, don't go there? That was one interpretation. But Paul had another interpretation. Verse 13. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, I am not running from persecution. I am ready for it. And I am ready not only to be bound, but I am ready to die for the name of of the Lord Jesus. So there were two interpretations, and Paul obviously had the strongest conviction because verse 14 says, and since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. And what was the will of the Lord? It had already been clearly revealed to Paul. The will of the Lord was that he would go to Jerusalem. And the information that God gave him about what would happen in Jerusalem was not to cause him to turn back. It was to prepare him for what was ahead. And he was prepared. That's why he says in verse 13, I am ready. Even in the face of well-meaning friends who misunderstood his plans. And then the third leg of the journey is the trip to Jerusalem in verses 15 and 16. And after these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us. Just as determined as ever, Paul started on this last leg of the journey. It was a 65-mile 
trip inland to Jerusalem. Probably took about three days by foot. And we're told here that a group of believers from Caesarea came with Paul to Jerusalem. And I like that. Because rather than their fears dissuading Paul, Paul's confidence motivated them. So much so that they joined him on the trip. Verse 16 continues, taking us to Manasseh of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. They took Paul and his companions to the house of a man named Manasseh. This is the only time he's mentioned in Scripture. And I'm kind of glad because I have trouble pronouncing his name. But this verse tells us three things about him. Number one, he was from Cyprus, large island in the Mediterranean where Barnabas came from. Secondly, he is referred to as a disciple of long standing. That means he had been a believer for a long time. Perhaps he was even one of the original 3,000 believers on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And then thirdly, like Barnabas, he had a big heart because he welcomed Paul and his company of Gentile converts to stay in his house during the Feast of Pentecost when all the religious Jews were gathered in Jerusalem. And that took a lot of nerve. And that's something that not everyone in the Jerusalem church would have been willing to do. Which brings us to the second misunderstanding, and that is that the Jerusalem church misunderstood his message in verses 17 to 26. Notice verse 17. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. The initial response to Paul and his companions was positive. And this is probably the place where Paul delivered the gifts from the Gentile churches to these needy saints in Jerusalem. Verse 18. And now the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Now, the mention of James and the elders signifies a change in the leadership. In the early chapters of the book of Acts, the Jerusalem church was ruled by the apostles. At the time of the church council in Acts 15, it was ruled by apostles and elders. And now when Paul returns in Acts 21, the apostles have apparently left Jerusalem to fulfill their mission, and the church is led by elders, which is the New Testament pattern for church government. Verse 19, and after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Paul gave a missionary report here, and two things stand out to me. Number one, it was specific. It wasn't couched in vague generalities or boring statistics. Paul related one by one the specific incidents that had taken place. In fact, he had some living examples because he had some born-again Gentiles standing right there in the room. It was specific. Secondly, it was humble. Notice this verse. He wasn't telling them about what he did. He was telling them about what God had done through his ministry. And their response reflects Paul's goal in verse 20. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. See, they weren't impressed with Paul. They were impressed with God. And that's always the measure of an effective ministry. It glorifies God. 
But amidst their joy and their praise, they also had a concern at the end of verse 20. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. Now that word thousands can be translated two different ways. Sometimes it's used of an innumerable company. And when it is described as a a number, it's always 10,000. So the elders say, look around at how many believers are here in Jerusalem. There are tens of thousands. Now, that's a big church. Through all the persecution, through all the financial problems, this church in Jerusalem had continued to grow, and it was now in the tens of thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem. And they go on to point out, and they are all zealous for the law, verse 21, and they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. There were rumors floating around these Jewish Christians about Paul. You know what they say about rumors. Though rumors rarely have a leg to stand on, they travel mighty fast. And there were rumors about the Apostle Paul. What were the rumors? Basically the same accusations that had arisen years before against Stephen. And that is that he was teaching the Jews to forsake the laws and customs given by Moses. You say, well, why after 20 years were so many believing Jews still clinging to the law of Moses? Hadn't they read a book of Romans? Hadn't they read Galatians? Well, probably not. And even if they had, old customs are difficult to change. You know, a few years later, right before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., God sent a letter to the Jews called the letter of Hebrews. And he wrote it to explain to them the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant. Donald Gray Barnhouse used to say the book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrews to tell them to stop being Hebrews. But at this time in the book of Acts, they are still in transition in that process. And because of that, they were misunderstanding Paul's message. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul had told the Gentiles not to place themselves under the law. But nowhere does he tell the Jews that it was wrong for them to practice their customs. You see, he saw that that was a transitional thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, Was any man called already circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Let each man remain in that condition in which he was called. Paul understood that it was a transitional process. That's why he writes Romans chapter 14. Because there were certain Jewish believers who were still following the dietary laws. They were still keeping certain days as special. There were other believers who had put those things aside. And Paul understood it was a transitional process. And he says those who were hanging on to the dietary laws and the special days were the weaker brothers. They had to grow in their Christian experience beyond those things. But that's a process. See, Paul was only concerned when a ceremony or a custom 
was trusted in for salvation. And he was also only concerned when a custom or a ceremony was used to judge your brother. That's the whole message in Romans 14. You're not to judge your brother on the basis of whether he keeps a day or doesn't keep a day. And so Paul wanted unity within the church. And so these rumors about Paul were completely false. If Paul taught Jewish believers not to circumcise their children, then why did he have Timothy circumcised in Acts 16.3? And if Paul taught Jewish believers not to observe the Jewish customs, why did Paul take a Nazarite vow in Acts 18.18? You see, these rumors were unfounded, but that's the nature of rumors. They don't have to be based on facts. They can be based on half-truths and prejudices and outright lies, and that's what was happening in the church at Jerusalem. And so the elders asked the question in verse 22, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. What are we going to do to offset this misunderstanding? And then they offer a suggestion in verse 23. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Now, these four men would be Jewish Christians. They were under a vow, probably the Nazarite vow. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 6. It was a vow of separation to the Lord for a certain period of time. During that time, the individual was not to drink any strong drink, not to eat or drink anything made from grapes, not to cut his hair, and not to touch a dead person. At the end of that designated period of time, he was to shave his head take that hair and go into the temple and lay it on the fire as a peace offering. And then he was to offer certain sacrifices to the Lord. And so verse 24, they say, take these four men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you but that you yourself also walk orderly keeping the law. The recommendation is that Paul join these four men in this vow and then pay for their expenses. And that would be rather expensive because if you go back to number six, each one of these fellows was to offer two lambs, one ram, unleavened bread, grain offerings, and drink offerings. So you multiply that by five. And that's what Paul had to pay. And so they say, if you do this, you'll dispel the rumor. Because how can they say that you're telling people to put off the customs when you yourself are keeping one of the customs? And then to dispel any scruple he might have had, verse 25 says, but concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. In other words, this in no way infringes upon the Gentiles. What we decided at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 still stands for the, for the Gentiles. This is just relative to the Jews. So what does Paul do? Verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Paul followed their suggestion. He went into the temple and participated in the purification ritual along with these four men. 
because the church in Jerusalem misunderstood his message. And you know, people still misunderstand him today. In fact, there are many good Bible teachers who have questioned Paul's decision here. They say that he compromised his convictions on this occasion. I don't think so. And I say that for several reasons. Let me just give them to you real quickly. Number one, Paul had taken a Nazarite vow on his own in Acts chapter 18. So why would it now be wrong for him to do it in Acts chapter 21? Second reason, Paul was not compromising any biblical truth here. This was a matter of Christian liberty. Paul was giving up his liberty in order to create unity with the weaker brothers in Jerusalem. And thirdly, if Paul made such a serious mistake as compromising the gospel, then why doesn't the Holy Spirit point that out in the passage so that we'll know? And fourthly, in a broader sense, Paul is simply doing here what he did so many other places to reach out to unbelieving Jews. He tells us about it in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, To the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those under the law as under the law, even though I'm not under the law. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. As great as the Apostle Paul was, he was misunderstood. His friends misunderstood his plans. The church in Jerusalem misunderstood his message. And I think that should be a great encouragement to us today. Because if you are misunderstood in your service for Christ, don't be discouraged. You're in good company. When you know there's persecution ahead, keep going. When your friends misunderstand, keep going. When the false rumors are flying, keep going. Because the Lord has called you to follow him.